0: All right, scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 1. Remember this portion of the story of God as it is written in the book that we love from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 25. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse, In the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning, a second day. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called the seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning a third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let, there be, let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days, and years, and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens, to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser night to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, and to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird and its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. The word of the Lord. Amen. If you haven't yet, I'd like you to open in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Many of the cultural change, well, first of all, what Laura was saying earlier today about New Year's, referencing New Year's resolutions or revolutions, (laughs) depending on how severe it is, but um, they're about self-improvement, self-achievement, what in my day uh, we used to call self-actualization. Uh, And so often it's about uh, the ideal self that we think we want to be, that we think that we ought to be, that we believe we could be if we focused on it. The self becomes the center of attention and, and many of the cultural changes and much of the deterioration of our culture over the last 60 years flows out of a desire to serve ourself. First of all, to find our true self. Who are we really? The idea is that we can find our true or our our authentic self by examining our gifts and our talents, our attractions and desires, our inclination and what our heart tells us. In other words, We look within ourselves to find ourselves. In contrast to this, the Bible directs believers to look to their creator if they are to discover their authentic self. Why? Because he's not done yet. Because he hasn't completed the work. He has started the work. There is still a lot of chaos and darkness in us that God is hovering over and dealing with. So I thought it would be a good idea for us to revisit the book of Genesis to find out what our beginnings are and what they tell us about our present and our future. But before we do that, we need to remember that Genesis wasn't written. Moses didn't pull the materials together and write them out For us, for 20th century evangelical Americans. He wrote them for Jews from uh, something like 3,500 years ago in the ancient Near East with totally different experiences of ours and a totally different set of assumptions about how we got here and why we belong here. It was originally written to an audience that was at home in the ancient Near East as Christians who are familiar with the biblical teachings of creation, we take an awful lot for granted that would not have been assumed by the first readers of Genesis. This, the first portion of the first chapter is, first of all, a correction of some of the teachings of other ancient Near Eastern creation epics and mythologies. In addition to correcting errors, it establishes a theological foundation for the whole remainder of the scripture. First, there are a couple of really important corrections that people who first heard this, uh, read to them, would, uh, would, would be surprised by. In the beginning, God created. The first words of the first sentence is itself A powerful statement. God created the heavens, the earth, and the beginning of time itself. In other words, the beginning started when God started creating. That's not the beginning of God. It's our beginning. So God was already there. Beginning, time itself began when God started creating it. So God created time as well as everything that we see around us. First of all, let's look at the word God. Though Genesis is compiled and written in ancient Hebrew by Moses, who was the first, and many would say, the greatest prophet, the greatest leader, and the first judge of the nation of Israel, even though this is a very Jewish book written for Jewish believers, the word for God Comes from the universal Semitic word El. El means God. They didn't use Yahweh, which is a very which is the Hebrew name for God, or even uh, the nickname, if you will, El Shaddai. Neither did they use any of the pagan names like Marduk or Shemosh, which would have been names of the, the Baals, the Baals of the different, the gods of the different peoples in that region. That is so this account would not be mistaken for a tale about a regional or national God or about his people. We are all. It's not about a people owning God. This is about a God who created and therefore owns all of us. God is cosmic. He's not the sole property of the Mesopotamians, the Canaanites, the Phoenicians, or even the Hebrews. Further, this Semitic word for God is curiously configured as plural. So, El is the singular word for God, Elohim, which is the word that you would see if you were, could read Hebrew, and if I could read Hebrew, I can. Uh, if you were to read the first word, in the beginning, God, that would be the word Elohim, and it is the plural of God. So, every time you see God, and uh, in, in actually, most in, in all of, uh, of uh, Genesis, you're, you, you should translate it gods. And yet, even though it's in the plural form, it's considered singular because all of the pronouns are he, him, not they, them. And what's more uh, uh, important. Most languages, and any of you who took a language other than English know that most languages have the verb. The verb is, is in, uh, uh, shows you whether it is in plural or singular form. We don't do that in our verbs. We allow the context to tell us if there are a lot of people doing whatever the verb is or just one person doing it. We look at the context. But in a lot of languages, they pair the verb with the noun, and in this case, the noun "Gods" Elohim is paired with singular verbs. So, it was summed up by one of the commentators, uh, um, Gordon Wenham, as God. The usage of Elohim is plural in form but singular in meaning. It's it's singular. In that God is a singular entity. He's not talking, first of all, he's not talking to anybody. He's not talking to other gods. It's not a conversation with other gods. It's not even a conversation with us. The truth is that God speaking here is more the act of creation, the expression of creation than it is of communication. This singular God stands in contrast to the collection, the pantheon of self serving, erratic, and petty gods and goddesses described in the pagan accounts because he is God alone. Now, this is God in plurality as well, and that is a mystery. It remains a mystery throughout the Old Testament until Jesus is revealed. Some people, some commentators say, well, it doesn't really refer to the Trinity because Moses couldn't possibly have understood or known about the Trinity. Well, it doesn't matter. The prophets frequently don't know what they're talking about, literally, or what God's talking about. They're just told, say this, and so they say this. Other commentators say, well, he's using the royal we, like a king, you know. You know, the king or the queen, we, as opposed to I. Because, but why is that? It's because they speak in community, for their community. Even if it's the royal we denoting God's royalty and sovereignty, still there is the hint, there is the mystery of plurality that is even introduced as early as the first writings of the creation account. Both aspects of God's singularity and plurality are revealed in part in this creation account. So the word created also has. Some interesting implications and corrections. Not only does the word God tell us something and in stand in, in correction of, of the ancient Near Eastern theologies, popular theologies of the time, but the word created does as well. In this account, God created both the beginning as well as the heavens and the earth. Like I said, the, the beginning is the act of creative effort on God's part. It's not about God's beginning. God is there. The beginning is when God starts to speak into being all of creation. There is no pre-existing time, no pre-existing place, no pre-existing substance. Both modern and ancient Near Eastern mindsets have difficulty with the concept that neither time nor matter are forever, are eternal. Creation was not the result. And this is another powerful change and difference in the ancient Near Eastern mythologies. Creation was not the result of cosmic struggle between the gods. The gods were having war with one another and somebody slipped and poof, creation. I mean, it's oversimplifying, but uh, there are so many creation, different creation accounts and, and there there seems to be uh, a struggle amongst the gods, or even in more Eastern the- uh, uh, philosophies or theologies, the idea of the yin and yang, the, the, uh, the Star Wars thing of the, 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 light, the light side of the force and the dark side of the force. They're both equal and they're at war with each other. And out of that conflict comes much of our life. That's refuted in the creation account of the Bible. Creation is accomplished simply and elegantly. Thought becomes word. Word becomes world. It's phenomenal. It's, it, and we're so used to that. We're so used to the, the, the very cadence of the first chapter of Genesis that it doesn't we, we don't know how different it is from what they would have heard at this time. A second correction is that the two leading deities of the ancient Near East mythologies, the divine powers or divine persons of gods, are revealed to be creations of Elohim's hand. The astral bodies, sun, moon, all of the constellations mentioned in verse 16, and the sea serpent, mentioned in verse 21, or the the sea monster, it's called in the the New American Standard. Uh, It's the Hebrew word tanayim, and it's often translated dragon or serpent or monster. But both of these, the, the heavens and the sea serpent, which figures, the great serpent figures over and over and over again as a main actor in the creation accounts in the ancient Near East. And they are both shown to be creations of Elohim. The dragon, who often fought with the gods in the epic tales, turns out to be just one more of God's many creatures. But here, the the dragon or the sea monster is no rival to the word of God. It's not a, a rival power of equal power. Both it and the heavenly bodies were spoken into being along with all of the rest of creation. And that leads us to presume that they could be spoken out of creation just as easily by the same God. So there are these two strong corrections that we're not aware of because our context is different. There are also some important theological foundations that, that are set here in these first verses of Genesis. First of all, that God is peerless. He is without equal. Like I said, there is no light or dark side of the force. There is no tension between good and evil, light and darkness, that creates the world and that animates the world. Rather, we see a creation that is in harmony with itself and with its creator. We see that tension Competition, that, that evil is not a thing. In the original creation accounts, that comes later. And it's not, it doesn't come from God, it comes out of his creation trying to usurp God. God. Unlike the ancient Near East creation myths, the struggle in creation was not part of the original picture. When struggle arises, it is not between warring gods. Rather, it is between God and his rebellious creation. Genesis establishes the ultimate power of Elohim's word and will to make a perfect and good creation that is in harmony with itself and with its creator. We also find out that God is the order maker, the law giver, the one who brings order to chaos and illuminates darkness. Elohim names his creatures. He divides and clarifies light and darkness, sea and dry land. He sets boundaries between species who are to procreate according to their own kind. He appoints stars and signs for the seasons and he directs all of creation to be fruitful and multiply. His word creates, and his character shapes. Ancient Near Eastern myths are full of misspoken words and ill-conceived incantations and deeds of the gods that are the cause of suffering and contention between the creatures. That's not the case here. Everything that Elohim does is good. Everything that he touches works out just as he intended. God's creation reflects his character. Ancient Near Eastern myths were full of divine eccentricities, gaffes, and divine tantrums that yielded unintentional results. In Genesis, each command hits its mark without exception. Elohim reviews everything he has accomplished. And unlike pagan gods who loathe either the whole of creation or certain aspects of it, Elohim looks over all that he has created and he says that it is all very good. Since according to Jesus and the rabbis, only God is good, creation at the very outset conformed to God's will and God's character. The heavens were indeed telling the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Finally, there is a great deal of spiritual insight in all of this corrective information in this theology, even for us here today. And we'll be looking into more of that as we study Genesis further. I especially like the phrase at the end of verse 2 that the New American Standard says, darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. That's not a really great translation. Uh, The word uh, rachaf, and I can't pronounce it, rachaf, the Hebrew word, appears only twice in the Old Testament and each time it means to brood. So, the NIV has it better. It says hovering. And I can't, does the, does the King James use the word brood or brooding? I can't remember. But it, the fact is that God is brooding over the waters and over the chaos. He is hovering. Creation is in process. And while it is in process, it is chaotic and dark. And the Spirit of God hovers over the mists and the waters because darkness is not dark to him. When you hover or brood, you are biding your time as you consider what you see and what you will do. Perhaps, in verse 2, God reflects on the cost of what he is about to do. Because he knew where it was heading, he knew where it would lead, and he knew what he would have to do besides destroy it. He wasn't going to destroy it. Because with God, we discover through the scripture that with God, creation is an act of love. And it will always be God's strongest A-game to redeem those who will allow him to reconcile them to himself. Creative endeavors for God are labors of love. They're not acts of necessity. Many of the ancient Near Eastern myths had gods creating human beings to work for them so that there would be someone to farm the world and feed them. It wasn't an act of quirky impulsiveness. The gods get drunk and they do something and, and all of a sudden an aspect of creation appears. Even the contentions that rose later were a result of God's love for his creation, not a lapse of power or failure of wisdom. He saw it ahead of time. He took it into account. Love always involves risks. And so God hovers. God foreknew all the rebellion, all of the alienation, all of the decay, and all of the death that lay in what His love wished to create. He also knew the power of hope and assurance of personal sacrifice and resurrection that he would take on himself. He knew the great cost. God was not and is not frightened or repulsed by darkness, by chaos, by confusion, or even the pain of future costs. He hovers and he broods expectantly. Not reluctantly. Not wishing that he hadn't done it. He takes it all in with anticipation and joy. He takes it all in with anticipation and mixes it with his joy. Joy that Jesus said in John 17 existed within the Trinity from our very beginning joy that made going to the cross contemptible, but endurable and worth it. God In verse three said, "Let there be light now. As yet there is no sun, there are no moon or there is no stars that have been created that came later. The light is God Himself. The Apostle John understood this when he wrote in the first five verses of the Gospel of John, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 45, God said, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, he says, I will dress you, he says to his prophet and his people. I will gird you, though you have not known me. That men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. God has created light and darkness. If ever darkness hides him from our sight, he is not absent, and we are not lost. He hovers waiting to become light for us. You and I are never alone. We are never abandoned in our seasons of darkness and even chaos. If we are surrendered to him, we are in progress, just like creation, when God hovered hovered over it. In those times, we must wait with him until once again he names He divides and clarifies. He sets boundaries. He appoints and he directs. For he is not simply created light. He is light. Jesus Christ is the light of life. And if we call on him and surrender to his creating hand, chaos will be ordered and given form. Night will be pierced by dawn and our lives will know the blessing of fruitfulness and with our creator we can say it is good it is very good let's pray lord jesus as we study your word we think of our own society that is almost torn apart with irrationality and chaos as each person looks inside to them to redefine themselves. To put themselves not just at the center of the universe, but to put themselves as their own gods. And it becomes more and more irrational as the time goes on. And I wonder, Lord, how much, how irrational we can be before we just start disintegrating altogether. So I pray, Lord God, that you would give us this encouragement as we read your word about our beginnings, as you reveal yourself to us, as you reveal us to ourselves, that we would learn what we need to know to find out how to be, to talk with grace and hope to those who are seeking the same things. For we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.